Hello, and welcome to the Tuesday, September 27th, 2022 episode of the Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest. Old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or the estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is jazz saxophonist, composer and arranger, and educator, Patrick Cornelius. Over the course of 20 years in New York City, alto saxophonist and composer Patrick Cornelius has cultivated a substantial body of work as a composer and band leader, and performed his original music in some of the world's top jazz venues hailed as self-assured and resourceful by the New York Times, elegant and extraordinary by Downbeat Magazine, in whose annual critics poll he has been listed among the rising stars multiple times, and bold and gifted by All About Jazz. Cornelius's disco discography of nine albums as a leader or co-leader features established veterans like Jeff Ballard, Ben Allison, and Frank Kimbrough, as well as rising stars, including Gerald Clayton, Aaron Parks, Kendrick Scott, and Miles Okazaki. As a composer, Cornelius has earned an array of awards and commissions, including four consecutive ASCAP Young Composer Awards. This is now called the Herb Alpert Award and Chamber Music America's New Jazz Works in 2012, and has been commissioned to compose and arrange original music for ensembles across the globe. Cornelius's latest album, Acadia, Way of the Karens, on Whirlwind Recordings, reunites his longtime transatlantic partnership with London bassist Michael Janish. Estonian pianist Christian Ronlo and Luxembourgish drummer Paul Wilkin after 10 years apart, praised as one of the best albums of 2020 by BBC Music Magazine and called thoughtful and ambitious by Jazz Times, Way of the Cairns 
showcases a suite of original music inspired by the natural beauty of Acadia National Park in Maine. An active music pedagogue, Patrick, who received a bachelor's degree from Berklee College of Music, a master's degree from the Manhattan School of Music, and an artist diploma from the Juilliard School, has appeared as visiting artist or guest lecturer at international institutions such as Berklee College of Music, Juilliard, the Royal Academy of Music, the Birmingham Conservatoire, St. Mary's University in Texas, the University of North Carolina, Hunter College in New York City, and Snow College in Utah. He serves on the music faculty of Snow College in Ephraim, Utah, and the United Nations International School in New York City, and currently lives in Brooklyn with his wife, two children, and seven neon tetras. Patrick is currently available for concerts, private functions, clinics, individual or group instruction. It is my pleasure to welcome to my musical universe, Patrick Cornelius. Hello, Patrick. Hello. It's really great to uh, talk with you and to have you as a guest today on uh, my show. You know, a question I like to ask uh, all musicians is what turned the light on for you? What turned you on to music? Okay, well, it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, and this is a story that, um, well, it's, uh, I'm sure it could be common of people my age who got into music. Um, I, uh, well, I started playing piano uh, when I was very young, like four or five years old. Um, and I, I took lessons for years as a kid, uh, and I never really had a particular knack for it or I didn't really enjoy it <laughs> that much. I was sort of always in the shadow of my older brother who started the same time as me, but tend to progress more quickly. Um, and then I, uh, my father was in the Air Force, so we lived a bunch of places. And at the beginning of middle school, um, I, we lived in England. We went to a Department of Defense school in England. Um, and uh, there wasn't a lot. I mean, there was a band there uh, that I sort of I play I sort of played in. Okay, so I started playing saxophone in sixth grade, just kind of holding it. But it wasn't what I really liked to do. Uh, I was really into drama, and I was really into visual art, like painting, etc. Um, so before eighth grade, my father got transferred to San Antonio, Texas. Um, and the middle school that we were zoned for, uh, I sort of entered in like at the last minute before school started and I wasn't able to get into the drama class um, but I was able to get into band which I wasn't really planning on doing but it was the one sort of arts elective that I could get into uh, and you know I, 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 I got going with the saxophone I think my dad bought me um, an actual nice instrument a Yamaha um, as opposed to what I'd been using previously uh, was one that belonged to the school overseas uh, and you know we had to do some auditions to to get chair order the middle school i went to we had a very large band program and it, for people who are not familiar with the music education culture in the midwest or in the southwest uh, band high school band is a huge thing 
mm-hmm. because it's tied into high school football. Uh, I tell a lot of my friends who've never been to Texas who don't know that um, high school football is like the sport that most Texans really feel like a religious devotion to. <laughs> <laughs> Especially people in Texas who don't live in like a major city like like San Antonio or Dallas or, or Austin or whatever. Every community has a high school uh, and the events of the high school are sort of what the community is focused around. And um, the football games happen every week and it's a big event. And so band... The awareness of the band program and the music program sort of piggybacks from football. There's a lot of funding that goes into these band programs, and there's a lot of emphasis on students joining the band and doing really well and excelling. So I, my middle school was a part of that. It was feeding into a high school that had one of the most um, recognizable, recognizably great uh, uh, high school marching band and concert band and jazz band programs in the state, actually. So... Um, you know, my first experience from just holding a saxophone and starting eighth grade with a bunch of students who were like way above me, you know, it was intimidating. And the first day of school, we had auditions for chair order, which is funny because I teach middle school now at a private school. And, and you know, we don't have auditions for chair order. We just sort of agree who's going to play what parts. And sometimes we switch around. But it was very competitive. And I tell them when I was going in. <laughs> I was very uh, intimidated and I wanted to do well. And I ended up getting fourth chair. Uh, but it sort of bruised my pride a little bit because, you know, I had a competitive streak to me. <laughs> and I thought, okay, well, next time I'm going to do better. I'm going to get at least second chair. And so I practiced and practiced and practiced. And there was a gentleman, uh, a, actually a young man, I guess he must have been in his 20s, um, named Harry Hassel who was a student, a graduate student at UTSA, mm-hmm. uh, who was came into the high school to give private lessons, uh, the middle school to give private lessons. So I started taking from him. And he instantly said, oh, you're doing this wrong and this wrong and this wrong. Um, and, you know, got me going on the right path. And then I saw some early, early progress and I got really motivated to continue. And that's when I heard the high school jazz band, the jazz band from the high school I was going to go into, uh, play and I was just blown away. There are high school students that were like improvising and they sounded to me like professional jazz musicians and and some of them were even playing gigs around town and that's when I was like, oh, I want to do that. <laughs> so that was the moment. It was in eighth grade and I went in high school into the high school and like I devoted all my free time to practicing. I was mm-hmm. really, you know, I was diagnosed with ADHD as a kid and a lot of people say. The, the flip side to ADHD is, is being able to hyper-focus on something. Mm-hmm. And the saxophone sort of uh, activated my hyper-focus, and I just got really into it. I got obsessive about collecting albums and listening to albums and going out to hear uh, the musicians in San Antonio. Um, and, uh, and you know, they would let me sit in and everything. And I just sort of entered this, the scene and started to do gigs, and, and that was it from then on. Mm-hmm. It was off to the races. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's interesting to hear your story because I was a band director in Texas. And I remember when I was I was interviewing, doing interviewing for my first job and I was interviewing at a school district that was uh, uh, I don't remember now which city exactly. It was a Dallas suburb. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember uh, being interviewed by an assistant superintendent who was uh, uh former coach and anyway so uh he said to me he says i can tell by the way you talk you're not from texas 
And I said, that's right, sir. I'm, I'm, I'm from Idaho. And he says, well, in Texas, do you know uh, what happens here on Friday nights in the fall? And I says, well, I understand that the, the high school football games. He said, that's right. And sometimes the competition that happens at halftime is just as important as the competition that happens during the four quarters of the game, you know, because that's one thing I tell my uh, uh, public school colleagues here in Wisconsin, that when I was a high school director in Texas, we played not just home games, we played all the away games. And sometimes that meant a four-hour bus ride. <laughs> oh, yes. I remember playing playing games in the Rio Grande Valley because our district oh, yeah. was sort of like gerrymandered in with yeah. the Rio Grande Valley. We would take like five-hour bus rides and play and expected to hit. But the most intense was when we played like there. So we were in the Northeast School District. My high school was called Marshall High School. And uh, I mean, we're in the north north side district and in the northeast district, like the flagship school of that district at the time. Of course, now these districts are much bigger than they were. Sure. When I lived there uh, um, <clears throat> was uh, the, their flagship school was na was called Churchill. And we considered to have like the two, you know, premier uh, band programs at the time in the city. And whenever we would play against Churchill High School, like the band director would just—I'd see it in his eyes—he would like get like the eye of the tiger, and he'd make us like stay longer and play everything we knew. And mm -hmm. it was really important to him that we, you know, our halftime show, which was, you know, here's another thing that people don't understand: in in college, the band plays a halftime show that's usually different each week, and it's mm -hmm. like pop songs, and it's for entertainment purposes only, but. In high school in Texas and in many other places that have marching band culture, um, you're preparing something that's more like an art piece for a show competition. Yeah, or, for you know, UIL, UIL marching band competition. Yeah, like we did Copeland one year and Stravinsky mm -hmm. another year and all sorts of like serious music arrangements put to drill. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, you know, it, it would get really, really competitive, uh, you know, and the bands would have their own, um, as you know. <laughs> would have their own sort of uh, 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 fans and followers who would go here from competition to competition, even if they didn't have kids in the program. Yeah, it yeah, it got to be got to be quite a following. And we the uh, the school where I taught did not have a very successful football team. Um, the uh, in the five years I taught there, they won three games and uh, and. Uh, <laughs> So one of the coaches, of course, one of my colleagues, he once said, you know, one of these days, see, Craig, said, we're going to have a football team the band can be proud of. And, <laughs> and but you guys keep going because it might be that you're the only thing keeping people there during after the third quarter. So because <laughs> the team usually be being slaughtered by the time the fourth quarter had come around. But anyway, that's yeah. it's interesting that uh, to know that you came up through uh, through, the you know, and you probably did solo and ensemble and maybe you yeah, went to went to that. state solo and ensemble at UT Austin and all that. Yeah, I did that my freshman year. I played uh, Tableau de Provence um, uh -huh. for uh, at the solo and ensemble state competition. And that was when I was still thinking that I was going to try to do a Wynton Marcellus, like to have a classical performing career. And a, sure. And then after that year, I was like, oh, that's I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's rare that that, you know, that's what makes him a rare cat is he's he's uh, he can pull that off. And it's not easy to uh, 
to hit from both sides of the plate, so to speak, right, musically, right. because uh, they, they have different kinds of demands. I'm still trying it, though. I mean, because I, I love both kinds, you know. Right. But, especially in saxophone world, when you talk about having to have different mouthpieces for different things, like it's hard enough, like all the different woodwind instruments that I have to keep up playing between clarinet and bass clarinet and flute and whatever, and then to have to deal with different mouthpieces setups on the oh. saxophone and oh it's well I, I had a conversation one time we one time at the university we we hosted a uh we called it saxo fest and we had uh. bill we had bill street down from uh canada and he brought jean-marie londec londex from france yep. and uh he uh, did master classes and so forth. But Bill, I got in a conversation with Bill. I'm a you know trumpet player, but I'm still fascinated in talking about his the equipment that he used and which type of piece. Because, you know, he, if you've ever heard any of his recordings, he does some wild stuff with multiphonics and, and, and uh, you know, overblowing the overtone series and, th and making it sound really good, you know, those kind of things. So, yeah, the saxophone is a... Uh, not an instrument that I was ever successful at, but I do admire it and enjoy enjoy knowing uh, more about it. Well, I remember uh, going back to the the state high school stuff. I was I did the Texas All State Jazz Band when I was in high school for a few years, and there was uh, one year uh, that um, that the great uh, educator and classical saxophonist um, Harvey Patel came yeah. down from um, Austin. And uh, he was listening to the rehearsal and, and he took me aside and was like, you know, you have somebody has to show you how to play the saxophone correctly, young man. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny because like previously up to that point, people only told me like how yeah. good you are. Right. And then how good I was. And I had a, my ego was all inflated. And sure. Then, like, <laughs> then you realize how little you actually know. And yeah. of course, he was talking about like intonation and embouchure and all that stuff. Yeah, all those things that that we 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 eventually get around to after we play all the right notes and rhythms. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or work an ensemble. But yeah, I have I had you know I think that's why, you know, when we go uh, when we learn, it's always good to learn from multiple teachers because sure. every teacher is going to have a a slightly different approach, and uh, and I think I had a similar experience uh, when I first uh, went to North Texas and was studying with Leonard Candelaria and he basically, uh, I mean, it started me from scratch practically, you know, I mean, like, this is an embouchure, this is the mouthpiece, right. you know what I mean? And well, that and, happened uh, to me again at Berkeley. Uh, when I first oh, yeah. started at Berkeley, I wanted to study with George Garzon because I was a huge fan of his. Uh -huh. uh, um, and he came to San Antonio and played at a jet local jazz festival there. And I was just like, whoa, he's amazing. And he is amazing. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, then af after after a year, um, I was in a big band at Berkeley. I played second alto, and uh, Miguel Zenon played first alto. Oh, and okay. He said, he said, listen, man, you, <laughs> you sound great, but uh, you got to get some stuff together. So I, I recommend that you study with Shannon Leclerc, uh next uh, next semester. And so because. You know, Miguel was always kind of like uh, somebody I really looked up to. And of course, still, mm -hmm. <laughs> I did everything he told me to do. So I had sure. to study with Shannon. And she, we changed my armature completely because I was playing completely wrong. And, sure. You know, and we worked on classical etudes and all that and just made sure that finally, uh, as 
as Harvey Fattel said, that somebody was teaching me how to play saxophone correctly. Yeah. <laughs> and then after I stayed with her for a year and a half, my final semester, I went back to George Garzon and we went back to working on conceptual stuff. So Cool. Well, I think that's the, that's the wonderful thing about, about learning an instrument, you know, and it, it's sort of like, um, uh, like anything else, the more you learn or the more, you know, the more you find out you don't know. You know, it's and, funny. That's exactly what my high school band director told, would tell us all the time. Yeah. The music is like a circle, like, and you fill in a little part on the edge that you know, but the more you fill in, the wider the circle gets. Yeah. I used to say that every rehearsal. I mean, I mean, I, I came across a term the other day that I had never heard of uh, in relationship to music theory, because as I recall, when I took music theory in college, you know, we we basically did everything tonal harmony and then maybe spent about two weeks uh, doing atonal theory, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, I'd never heard of the Wilson Hexony. And I and so I had to look it up and and to find out what it was all about. And it's just a, I haven't heard of that either. Well, there you've got something to go on Google. There is a good, pretty good uh, YouTube video that explains it. It's sort of like uh, looking at uh, tonality as a cube, mm-hmm. and uh, going different different uh, uh, points on a cube. But uh, anyway, so there's always something new to learn. And that's that's yeah. uh, both frustrating, but also satisfying, because even when you get to be older, you're never done. You know, there's right. always things to do. Well, uh, you know, I, I, I it sounds to me like you, you got turned on to music, you got turned on to jazz kind of simultaneously. And uh, we all have that origin. I, I, I love to share mine. Mine was hearing the Stan Kenton Orchestra in 1972 when I was in high school and sitting in like the third row and the band opening with Malaguena and it blew my hair back, mm-hmm. you know, and I went, man, that is awesome. That's freaking awesome. And then uh, hearing the, the tenor uh, blow, just a really great solo and all that. And I thought that's a music I want to get involved in. So. So, uh, you know, those are all, we all have good, different origin stories. Well, let me ask you then, uh, Patrick, what, what uh, uh, would you say are the major challenges of being uh, maybe not just a jazz artist, but being an artist who maybe does other things, but also plays jazz? What are the challenges of being an artist in the 21st century? I think that, I think one of the largest challenges, uh, well, I can, I can put a sort of put a spin on this as relative to my personal experience at this point in time. Now I've reached middle age and um, like uh, where to come up with the time you need to pursue all the things you have to do and all the things you want to do. Um, I think time management uh, and, you know, it, it's it's people who are older always say of people who are younger. Uh, that youth is wasted on the young uh, and so is time like when you are young you have um, seemingly limitless time <laughs> uh, especially starting out as a young musician and before you have your career going and what have you um, and I think about like in my 20s when I would spend four hours a day just doing long tones before getting into the rest of my practicing like how maybe I could have um, uh, manage my time a little bit better because now I find myself interested in all sorts of other things. Right. I'm spending a lot more time on other auxiliary woodwind instruments 
which are chops that I just wasn't interested in building when I was young, a younger musician. And I'm, I'm doing a lot of writing and arranging, uh, which is something, again, I could have gotten a foundation in in my 20s, but I was just single-mindedly concerned with being like an amazing saxophone player, and I just thought that what I needed to do was to spend 10 to 12 hours a day doing that. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so now, uh, having all different pieces of the puzzle of my life uh, as, as a, a family man and as an educator and as an instrumentalist of many different instruments and as a, a writer and composer, and then also... Uh, as like a self uh, promoter slash booking agent slash manager and, you know just juggling all these things uh, I think uh, for, for me finding the the ability to manage my time effectively uh, particularly coming from someone who as I said earlier is dealing with an ADHD sort of brain um, in which time horizons can sort of get away from me I think uh, the biggest challenge to being an artist in this day and age at this age where I am at this point in my career is time management because okay. I seem to have no lack of inspiration now like I discover something new and something I want to do and I think man I really want to do that okay we're gonna find the time to do that I gotta figure mm-hmm. that out <laughs> so that's it that's what man, I say I, I hear and you there, and then there are some very also some very practical uh challenges too like venues like when i moved to when i moved to new york city 21 years ago there were so many more venues so many more there were like i guess in new york city like 25 to 30 venues that no one has ever heard of anymore like internet cafe and cavejas and you know and detour and like all these places are just have been gone forever even the most famous ones now post-covid are gone like the jazz standard and the Catano and, you know, and the 55 bar, they're all yeah. gone. Cornelia Street Cafe. So that is a practical challenge, finding places to play and also paying rent and whatever. Sure. <laughs> I, I have nothing but uh, but empathy for younger artists coming to New York now, trying to put it all together because, like, you know, rents being what they are and just the cost of getting around in the city and gigs paying what they pay. Like, I don't know how y'all do it. But, uh, yeah. So those are all challenges specific to different points in your yeah. career and stage of life. Yeah, it's definitely la boheme, yeah. you know, because we we pursue it, we pursue because we're we love it, and uh, and sometimes it's hard to make uh, make a living with it or make a living solely with just one thing. I uh, yeah, you know. And well, my uh, philosophy has become: as long as I'm making a living in something that has to do with music. And that's on my terms. Then I'm cool with it. Yeah. You know, whether so, you know, I've long since let let go of any sort of pride I have of what sort of gigs I will or won't do, as sure. long as the terms are favorable. Um, why not? Yeah. No, I'm I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. I think that uh, uh, the time management issue, because I'm I'm sort of like a, I, I have found since I've uh, retired from full-time teaching and that I don't have some of the obligations that I used to have, like going to committee meetings. And also I used to be chair of the music department. So I had to oversee other faculty and budgets and curriculum and all that kind of stuff. And, and since I don't have that, it seems like, you know, I, every time I turn around, I get a a new idea for something I want to want to pursue, you know, so, Oh, that looks cool. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to buy that music and I'm going to study it or I'm going to 
look into these recordings or or my like the most recent thing I did, there was a developer up in northern Wisconsin who developed a digital trumpet. Oh. And uh, and so I saw this and I thought, hey, that looks like fun. You know, it's it looks it's kind of cool. And uh, in fact, here, I'll show it to you real quick. But uh, it's called. Oh, uh, yeah, it's called a digibrass. And uh, and then it. But uh, what I'm having. Fun with is I can Bluetooth it into my. Uh, uh, iPad, and then I've got uh, two or three uh, uh, synthesizers, and then I can use send, the. What's that? Does it send a MIDI signal too, or just? Um, well, I think it acts as a MIDI controller, okay, through Bluetooth. So I'm all of a sudden I've got this idea. I have this one group. It's a trio. Uh, it's a uh, trumpet, trombone, tuba, and we we play some traditional kinds of things, but we're also do we do some experimental kind of things, and so of course now because of this and the synthesizers and looping devices and things that I've accrued, I've got all these wacky ideas about how to maybe take this group in a different direction, you know, and anyway, that's a, an example of of the kind of thing that uh, I'm doing while at the same time, like I direct a band at the university. And uh, one of the pieces that I'm gonna have the band do this fall is, uh, uh, it's cause it's a community band, uh, is the theme to the uh, the Mandalorian. Oh. And I don't know if you know that show or you know the music from it. I saw it. it once or twice. Okay. Yeah, my son is really into Star Wars. Yeah, well, I am too. And, well, anyway, the theme music the composer is a, a Swedish composer named Goransson, who is also a recorder player. And that opening lick that you hear that is sort of, uh, that's played on bass recorder. Oh, interesting. Well, I told my wife, she's a recorder player and she has a bass recorder. So I said, that's we're going to add something to the arrangement that's not in the arrangement. I'm going to have you play that that lick on bass recorder. We're going to run it through the echoplex. It's going to sound really cool as a way to, to enter. Anyway, I, I could go on about all the wacky ideas I come up with, but right, I understand right. what you mean because there's only 24 hours in a day and I need 30, <laughs> yeah, you know, just so I can have time to sleep and take a nap and all that. But but, uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of people in the business, uh, professional musicians uh, in L.A. and New York and Nashville, Memphis, uh, Chicago. And a lot of them say this, that, you know, of course, it, things have changed a lot with technology. And it, you like say, you have to spend uh, time practicing your instrument so that you, you stay up on your chops and you're developing your your art. But then you've also got to be on there maintaining your website and out there communicating with people and hunting up gigs and all other kind of stuff that we didn't used to have to do because we didn't have the technology we have or it was done differently. It was done by, you know, an agent or an agency or something. But but, yeah, balancing time anyway. Well, let me ask you, uh, let's get to kind of a general question. Uh, jazz. 
comes in a lot of different flavors. And, you know, Patrick, from your, your point of view, what is the essence of jazz uh, across all of its various flavors? And how does jazz differ from other styles of music? Well, um, so at its heart, jazz is a folk music, right? That comes out of a folk tradition from Black Americans. Uh, and so, you know, it's got to retain some elements of from whence it came to have a relationship to its identity, I think. And this is how where it starts to get a little muddy for me. A lot of people like to dictate, like, what is jazz? What isn't jazz? Um, I mean, it's, it's a combination of things for me, right? Like, you, you know it when you hear it. It's it, It's got to have one of a little bit of, like, of the of the groove. I mean, you could say swing. Mm -hmm. I mean, most people think of jazz, they think of swing, right? But not necessarily. But I think there's... There's got to be like a heavy, heavy groove. Uh, once the music gets sort of floaty and out of time, if it doesn't retain relationship to any of the other other elements, then I think we're in some other some other area. Right. Um, uh, and then, you know, a relationship to the blues, mm -hmm. um, uh, call and response, that sort of thing. Uh, whether I mean, again, whether the blues is like explicitly the melodic what we identify melodically as 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 bluesy or whether it comes from the again the call and response tradition or whether it's a form of the blues i don't know again it's pretty much like uh, how do you describe a color like how do you describe yellow well, mm -hmm. you can say where it falls on the color wheel or you can just say like you know it when you see it right mm -hmm. you sort of know what's not yellow right if something gets a little bit too orangey uh then we're in orange right Mm -hmm. But, you know, mm -hmm. you can be yellowish orange or yellowish mm -hmm. blue or whatever, <laughs> I guess. Um, you know, an imp improvisation is, of course, obviously one of the most important elements. But you can have jazz without improvisation. Like uh, you can have, you know, a piece that doesn't have improvisation in it that's still clearly a jazz piece. I don't know. If I played, if I played All the Things You Are and it was swinging... Uh, and we just played the head and that was out. Well, I guess you could say there was an improvisatory element to how we interpret the melody. So, I mean, I guess that's pretty important. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but again, you know, I, I tend to be like, you know, I tend to appreciate all the, the subtle uh, hues and shades uh, to use the color wheel analogy um, without sort of saying whether, without cast. Casting a sort of um, value judgment over how jazzy or not jazzy something might be. Um, so I can say like this doesn't sound like jazz at all, but I can hear where it might have. It could be jazz musicians. I can mm -hmm. hear they play their instruments with a jazz sensibility, but what they're playing isn't jazz. Um, and I could still think like that's awesome. <laughs> that's cool. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know. Um, that's sort of where I fall. I mean, I, my music always, most of my music, with the with the exception of my last album, well, still my last album, most of my music is very, I mean, it's, it's very easily identified as jazz. I mean, I mm -hmm. like stuff that swings. I like stuff that's, that lets bluesy and, and beboppy and like has that sort of edge to it. Um, I like the, the, the tradition of the alto from Benny Carter and Johnny Hodges, you know, Bird and Cannonball and Paul Desmond, Kenny Garrett, you know, the whole, <laughs> the whole lineage. Sure. I like that stuff. 
but you know I have made attempts to incorporate other sort of non-jazz influence influences into my music too and the last record that I made I, I specifically wanted it to have sort of a euro jazz tint to it because that was a well, that's a whole that's a whole other story behind that band, but mostly because the the musicians that I was playing with are very established European musicians, um, and uh, we we recorded that album so we could tour extensively in Europe. Um, and I guess I was thinking in that way when I was writing the music, and I was listening to a lot of ECM albums. Um, but of course, COVID happened, and none of the touring all got canceled. But the record still came out. And that's sort of the story behind it. Sure. But I think we sort of started at your question and worked our way. To well, else you know, it's, it's, I, 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 you know, I used to have students when I taught jazz history, they say, well, well, Dr. Hurst, what, what is jazz? And I said, well, I could tell you, I said, but if once I got started, it's like trying to grab a handful of jello. You might think yeah. you've got a handful, but so much of it will slip through your fingers because there are so many different kinds of elements involved. But I love the way that you put it with when you see it, or excuse in the case of jazz, when you hear it, you you know what you know that it's jazz. Like um, I'm gonna pull an example out. It's like I could listen to the Gaucho album by Steely Dan. Yeah. Wonderful album. Even uses jazz players on on the album, but I don't think that even Steely Dan would consider what they did was no. jazz. But certainly a no. lot of jazz elements there. But I've heard, I've heard I've read interviews with uh, with Fagan where he considers them to be a blues band more or less. I guess yeah. with sort of fusiony and rock uh, undertones, and it's true a lot of the songs. Um, on their records end up being blues like in one manner or another in some form or another um, like I, I saw this really interview I watched this really in interesting interview with Donald Fagan on YouTube I don't even remember who it was with it must have been from the 90s where he was talking about writing the song Peg and mm -hmm. he, said he wanted to write a major blues <laughs> so a blues that was like with a major feeling and not like a dominant and bluesy feeling okay um, but yeah you're right uh you know, there are plenty of plenty of rock music is blues influenced and blues informed, you know, like like Sting and David Bowie. And, you know, the, and, uh, you know, I wouldn't say actually I wouldn't say Genesis is was jazz influenced, but certainly like fusion, fusion, fusion adjacent, maybe the early stuff, at least. But, you know, those elements are and influences are swirling around, but definitely it, they're not jazz bands. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, and, 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 you know, and there's, there's, um, you know, there are musics where there is improvisation, but they wouldn't refer to it as jazz, because it doesn't come from the jazz tradition. But, you know, and I think we can get, I ultimately, I tell my students, I say, look, we can get all hung up on different categories, and different labels and all of that. I said, but what's really important is just to for you to listen and take from it what you like and make it part of your life because it'll enrich your life, you know, and so on and so forth. Because there's lots of great music out there, whether it's jazz or classical or R&B or funk or, or what have you. Um, but, uh, you know, jazz still is. I will still 
contend is America's only original art form. And, and, uh, and it's a, you know, a great, uh, great contribution of, of uh, many different uh, uh, elements of African, European, Caribbean, so forth, all these wonderful combinations of things that, uh, that certainly is, is great. And, you know, and, and like you, I, I, you know, I, I listen to as before I do an interview, I try to listen to, uh, an artist's, uh, music as much as I can find anyway. I was listening to one of your early albums, mm-hmm. one from 2006, I think it was. And, uh, no, it, that might've been it, but it, it's the one that has Billy's bounce on it. Oh yeah. Lucid dream. Yeah. Yes. And I went, yeah, man, I'm really liking, you know, because of course I, you know, I, I love that. I love that sound. I love that music, but I also love, you know, babies then. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think Aaron Parks was like only 18 years old. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and, and then when you talk about those traditions and I, and I always try to play a game with myself sort of to try to guess, okay, so I'm thinking now, who does Patrick sound like? So I'm going down this checklist and I'm thinking Lee Konitz. No, you're not, you don't sound like Lee Konitz and you don't. Yeah. But I, but I got thinking of, I, I, I was kind of starting to lean towards Phil Woods, but Art Pepper was the one that just kept popping out. Well, maybe, uh, so, so not Art Pepper and not Phil Woods, um, but people adjacent to those, cats like okay. desmond is one of my biggest influences okay and cannonball is one of my biggest influences so huh. they're sort of like you know cannonball is kind of adjacent to phil uh and and you know desmond is sort of adjacent to pepper like stylistically okay sure <laughs> so, sure so i would say you're not off base but and definitely not off base with conan i love lee conan's oh uh, i do too i had the opportunity i had the opportunity to interview him once and it was a huge honor uh, but I wouldn't say uh, definitely he was not has not been one of my biggest influences. Um, but, you know, getting back to sort of just to put a cap on the end of that last um, discussion, you know, I, things tend to get a little uncomfortable when you talk about race and music. And I just I just want to add that I tend to gravitate towards music, jazz music that retains the black elements uh, you know that you can he can tell that this is like connected to the more the the black american uh, musical tradition if it starts to get too like you know european sounding or classical sounding then i tend to think like okay we're into something else and i think that's cool but and i try to impress upon my students most importantly like you can attempt to play whatever music you need to play to get a gig <laughs> Mm-hmm. If you get hired to play rock and roll honky tonk saxophone, or if you get hired to play like a classical sounding version of Amazing Grace or whatever, uh, it's all good as long as you respect the musical tradition that you're coming from and put an effort into trying to be appropriate to the style. And I think a lot of uh, you know a lot of jazz musicians will take gigs for the money. I think um, where they are meant to do something specific and they don't take the time to uh, really uh, honor the musical style and the tradition of what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. For example, playing like Sonny Stitt type of solos over like what should be a Clarence Clemens type solo on a Mm -hmm. Bruce Springsteen tune. I mean, you know. 
So yeah. I just want to say that, that that tends to be important to me. I try to listen to like if everything sounds within context, honest within the context it is, then I'm almost always going to like it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I hear where you're coming from because one of the uh, bands that I have that I put together, because uh, I have six, each one to kind of uh, go along with my own tastes. And one of them is a New Orleans style brass band because I love that stuff because it's yeah. boisterous. It's wild. It it just says, you know, party and just let it go. Well, I have a number of younger people that play in that group with me, college age students. And uh, and I'm so we had a rehearsal the other night and I'm, I'm saying, you know, you're just playing too darn politely for this style of music. Yeah. I mean, you have to just, you know, you have to let go. You have to cut loose. You have to not be afraid to make a mistake. I said, this is different from like when we're in traditional uh, big band and trying to play the absolute tightest ensemble that we can. This has got to be looser. It's got to hang, you know, anyway. So, you know, but trying to and, and play recordings for them and things like that so they can kind of get an idea. But for music but, like that, I almost think that people need to experience it like live and in person um, before they really, before it clicks for them. You know? you know, that's what it took for me. That's what it took for me. It was hearing the Dirty Dozen Brass Band live when they came to Milwaukee couple of different well, i've heard them i've half a dozen times but the one that really shook me up was uh, the rebirth brass band when they were in milwaukee about three years ago and and i went to hear them and and uh they opened up playing hugh masakela's grazing in the grass and wow. it was the most boisterous i mean it was you know the the, the original uh hugh masakela version is sort of semi-refined sounding to me this was just raucous and it was beautiful anyway but yeah. we could we could go on and on about those things but i i, I want to get back to to specifically to you uh you know i uh when i used to teach jazz history uh i and i would teach about duke ellington i would remind my students that ellington you know studied to be a painter before he did before he dove seriously into music and that in my opinion his composition was a painting on canvas or painted with sound on a canvas of silence with various timbres color com uh, timbre combinations you know his unique uh, orchestrations and things like that so would you talk about your various approaches to the elements of music as a jazz performer and composer that you may take to create different colors and forms of musical expression. Okay, sure. Well, um, well, these days, uh, these days, most of my sort of like self expression in regards to creative music comes through writing. Uh, because as I mentioned before, when I'm hired to do music, I want to be appropriate to whatever the situation is I'm hired to do. If it's my band, then it's another story. We're playing my music, and then we're back in the category of expressing it through my writing. Uh, and typically, you know, a lot of people will get, a lot of writers, um, I, I, I describe as sort of uh, self, uh, self-expressionist, right? So there's something inside that they want to... Uh, um, get out, express through their music, a feeling, 
or a musical idea or an, uh, some sort of concept, a harmonic concept or whatever. But I've never been able to write that way. I mean, I've written a few songs where I've started with a harmonic idea or a musical theoretical idea and then worked backwards to find the melody. And I don't particularly care for those tunes that I've written that way. <laughs> okay. Although some people have liked some of them and some they're frequently requested when I play places. <laughs> I really don't like that. No, I would never say that. But I won't say which tunes of mine they are. But um, so usually I have an idea for something that's it's either narrative, it's got a narrative context, or I've seen an image of something, a picture or a painting. Um, you know, when I was when I was first starting out in saxophone in middle school, as we talked about, uh, you know, I was trying to listen to as much of saxophone literature as possible, and you can't escape pictures of an exhibition as a saxophonist because you know mm -hmm. one of the the old castle is one of the most iconic. Uh, classical solos featuring the instrument. So I've always sort of gravitated towards the idea of seeing an image of something uh, or seeing something in real life and then trying to recreate the image or the story song form. Not, not strictly programmatic so that I'm writing something that sounds cinematic like a film score or whatever, but more or less capturing the... Um, the mood or the or the uh, feeling of something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is all, all seems very lofty, but I can break it down for you. Uh, my last album is uh, called Way of the Cairns. Mu mm -hmm. uh, music it's inspired by trips to Acadia National Park that I've taken uh, in Maine. And um, the tunes are inspired by various experiences that I had there. Uh, and then there's one in particular uh, called Star Party that is literally like it, it, it sounded like I wrote this melody because I wanted to 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 depict the feeling that I had laying on on the sand beach like watching the the sky the stars and and there was a star party on the beach where an astronomer comes and people go and he gives a, gave a lecture because the, the, the International Space Station uh, passed by and there was the the Pleiades a meteor shower at the same time so it was like very eventful and there was a star party there and it was so fun and so i wrote a song to try to convey that sort of feeling of how i felt describing you know um well i just wanted to give people the impression of the experience that i had and so that's kind of the way i write music right uh there you mentioned my first one of my first albums i can't remember if it was my first or my second one but lucid dream where that billy's bounce was from there's a song on there called winds of change and I wrote that because uh, I, I was thinking when I was a kid, I spent some time in Georgia when my dad was stationed there. And we used to, and we lived at the bottom of a hill in a cul-de-sac. And there were always these little like dust devil winds, mm -hmm. uh, mini miniature tornadoes with, that would kick up leaves. And so I, I came up with a melody and a bass line that sort of reminded me of that. And, and that was the idea behind that song. So that's kind of how I go about it. Um, I have something that I want to depict in a way. Uh, and I, I sing uh, a melody or something in my head or, or a rhythm that I think can get at that feeling. And then I try to capture it best I can and then flesh it out from there. Okay. Uh, okay. One thing I'm trying to do is to be more efficient in my workflow because a lot of times I'll have the idea, like a lot of times they come to me in the shower because like <laughs> thinking in the shower. I'm a shower guy too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're, you're thinking in the shower or singing or whatever. Yeah. And like, oh, I have that. Got to keep it 
Gotta yeah. keep it in my head, gotta keep it in my head. And then I get to the piano and I can't like write it out fast enough and then it's changed. I try like singing into my phone to record it, but my my voice is terrible and I can't always hold the, the pitches in my voice. And then sometimes I, like if I try to play it, I've tried to play it into logic in my computer, but again, like it, it's not... Oh, well, I'm just something I'm working on. <laughs> sure, I hear you. Well, you know, Claude Debussy used to say that the composition or the is uh, seeing uh, a flash of lightning and then trying to recreate what you saw right. musically, yeah. and it's it's very similar and yet the same challenge because how do you, you know, uh, the time inspiration comes often in a flash of insight, and and then you want to try to capture that before you lose it. And, uh, and it's a, it's really, really a challenge, but, uh, I, it's interesting when you talk about, uh, wanting to tell a story, uh, or, you know, describe a picture, uh, some time ago I interviewed, uh, Alan Ferber. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure, you know, Alan, uh, well, you know, Mark anyway, I know cause Mark's well, played with you, you know, them both. A... Yeah. The two two of the first people I met when I moved to New York City. Okay. Uh, well, uh, Alan's Alan's turned out to be a really great friend, and he, uh, we had a wonderful conversation, and and uh, but he, I asked him about his compositional, you know, process and how you know when he got, writes a chart, he, he says, well, he generally thinks of uh, like an, a big banner a chart in terms of three characters. You know, and he says any more than that, it becomes kind of a mishmash. But, you know, so he might have, you know, three characters is defined by different lines or sections or whatnot that he puts. And I thought that was interesting. But the also the idea of trying to try to tell a story. I mean, I guess, you know, ultimately and d disagree with me, if, if you if you will. But ultimately, music is just a form of communication. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. so telling telling a story, painting a picture. Uh, when I would have students ask me and I'd play them, you know, uh, a piece of classical music, you know, that didn't have lyrics. And they say, Dr. Hurst, I don't understand what it means. Are there aren't any words? And I said, well, when you listen to the music, what movie do you see in your head? What, mu what, what movie is this the soundtrack for, you know? So I think uh, that's, that's really, really kind of interesting. Uh, well, what typically motivates you to write? Uh, deadline. A deadline. Yep. Okay. <laughs> I'll try. I'll try. Duke another famous Duke Ellington uh, quote: "I don't need more time. I need a deadline." Yeah. <laughs> you know, it just seems like uh, you know. Uh, again, I don't want to keep coming back to my neurological peculiarities, but it, from what I've read about uh, ADHD brains, <laughs> is that um, things tend to happen. Uh, for people like me, the best work tends to come uh, when uh, everything is imminent. There's an imminent need, mm -hmm. right? My only thought about this, like for example, you know, something becomes a crisis, and then and then you have to solve it. Yep. Um, my thinking about this might be like, you know, maybe it comes from uh, an adaptation for people who, uh, nomadic tribes of people who are escaping like saber-toothed tiger attacks or something like that. Like sure. To, <laughs> but um but if i know that i have something like for example um like i booked uh so back in january i booked a gig at smalls for my i was sort of resurrecting my octet uh, 
which was a, a, a group that I had for many years. We played regularly at a venue that no longer exists. It's called um, the Cornelia Street Cafe. Uh, I used to play there with the octet like uh, every month, and I developed a repertoire. And, you know, that place went out of business, and then we, we did some gigs some other places, and then eventually it just became difficult to try to keep it up. So, but anyway, uh, I I thought the idea that like what if, what if I, I book a gig at Smalls for the, for the octet, and I thought it'll give me a chance to write some new charts. So I, I set mm -hmm. the goal of writing four new charts for this particular gig. You know, so that that was something that I it was completely like self inflicted, right? It wasn't like yeah. somebody commissioned me to write those four charts. Right. Uh, I did it. I commissioned myself to do it, and I got it done. Yeah. Um, or, you know, I, if I get hired to write music for a video game and there's always hard and fast deadlines for that work uh, and it comes very fast and the deadline is the most important thing. Uh, so, you know, it's good to always have that deadline to, 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 for inspiration. Or if I have like, um, you mentioned Alan, I've been a member of the, um, of the BMI Jazz Composers uh, workshop for the past few years and he's the co-director. Oh. So, you know, uh, I try to write a new piece or at least a new half of a big band piece or something for, for the reading sessions to have something new to bring in for the reading sessions. That's a good deadline. Okay. You know, okay. Those so, kind of things. So it's, it's, you know, the more I can work towards something tangible happening, uh, I find the, the more efficient I am at getting it done. Sure. Otherwise, if I just say like, I have this vague idea I want to work towards, I might get a little bit done here and there. But if it's not, if it doesn't seem urgent to me, then I'm not as motivated. Yeah, I've some, I somehow remember a quote somewhere. If you want to get something done, uh, ask the busiest guy in town. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, uh, I know that you mentioned that you're teaching middle school students. Uh, but uh, school, yeah. oh, and high school. Okay. Um, so what advice do you give your students who, who might be aspiring toward a career in music? So I'll clarify that I'm, I, I'm a part-time faculty member for a private school that's K through 12. Um, okay. And, uh, I'm assist, an assistant, uh, band director, um, and, uh, give private lessons. Okay. So, uh, most of my students are so highly, um, scheduled, uh, that very few of them actually have the idea that they want to become professional musicians or to study music in college, but sometimes they do. Uh, and my advice to them, as it is to college students when I give visiting artist workshops, uh, is that the people you surround yourself with or the people that you find yourself with are your most important resource. Um, to not lose sight of your fellow students and your peers uh, and to always uh, treat people with respect and consideration and love and support because they're going to support you in turn. You know, I, I can count almost all of my musical associations to, uh, you know, like as little as three degrees of separation to people that I met uh, either at uh, Berkeley or at Juilliard or, you know, the places I went to school. Um, and, uh, you know, I can't stress to young people enough to keep in touch with, you know, with your peers because the people you see on the way up are the same people you see on the way down. Right. And, um, you know, as a community, we are our best resource to each other. So 
So to, to my students who are thinking about maybe going into music, uh, I say, whether you decide to or not, uh, to be professional or not, um, there is something you can learn from everybody. So keep in touch with your with your fellow students after you've graduated. Um, it's easier now than it was when, when we were their age. Sure. Because um, you can always learn or, or something from somebody, no matter no matter what. So I, I, I try to tell them to keep open minds and open hearts, and to also have a perspective of the long game. Mm -hmm. When you're young, you want things. You want to think, how quickly can I get something? Uh, I remember because when I was in in middle school and high school, as we discussed earlier, I thought, how soon can I be selected for the Texas All-State Jazz Band? Right. And it, I thought I, I could make it my freshman year of high school, but that wasn't realistic and it didn't happen. But by the sophomore year, it could. And, and then eventually I started to think like, well, that's being selected for an honor for an honor or an award isn't the most important thing. It's like, when can I, will I be able to play Cherokee in all 12 keys? Well, and then being able to, uh, and then I was thinking, well, uh, a technical achievement is not necessarily the most important thing. How about when will I be like a great player that has the respect of peers? Or when will I be able to play with artists who play with other sidemen who play with artists I love, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I tell them to try to think where, not where they want to be in a month or musically, but where, or a year even, but where they want to be in like five years or 10 years and, sure. and think about what you, sh what they need to get together now so they can work towards consistently and in a patient way, um, a little bit every day to, to be able to get to that place they want to be in 10 years. It's, and it's, it's hard for anyone to think about, let alone a young person. So yeah, yeah, um, young people, young people. It's really hard to get them to think, think, uh, you know, into the future because they always planting the seed can sometimes be enough because you can yeah. plant the seed and then it'll sprout like maybe a few years into right. the college term. <laughs> yeah, like, and then you run into them and said, "I remember what you told me back in eighth grade," and by golly, finally it happened or something. Sure, I, I've, I mean, I've had those experiences. I've had former students I've run into, and and uh, especially students like that had taken my my music appreciation or my jazz history class, and I'll have somebody from clear out of the blue like from 20 years ago, you know, I'm so-and-so, I took your jazz history class. I'm still listening to Miles Davis. And I thought, all right, you know, good. Yeah. You know, I, I got through to you. Um, you know, Patrick, you play with some of the highest level musicians in, in the country. Uh, and I have a number of younger people who listen to my podcast. And, uh, as, you know, as a word to them, what would you... Uh, say that you have learned from your association with other musicians in New York City and elsewhere? Um, let's see. Overall, I've learned to listen more. Okay. I mean, on the bandstand. Um, to, uh, you know, it used to be when I was younger, the biggest thing I was concerned with on the bandstand was... Um, how I was playing. And now when I get on the bandstand, it's like, I just want to, it is so much joy in hearing the musicians that are playing with me, that are playing with me. Like I remember, um, 
there was one gig I did at the, this place called the Kitano that doesn't exist anymore. And the rhythm section was Clarence Penn, Matt Brewer, and Aaron Parks. And, you know, I, there was one tune we played, and I just played one chorus because I, I wanted to, I just wanted to bask in, like, the joy of hearing those amazing mm. cats playing my song. Um, so, uh, so for me, like, when you're on the gig, be more concerned or be try to be as concerned with if not more concerned with you know with with everybody else right and i guess it's sort of a recurring theme to what i what i have to say like the sooner we can shed like the ego uh in ourselves as musicians i mean you can't freud can say that man can't transcend the ego but but in a musical sense like you can be less concerned with having the perfect solo or showing off or getting the most house, you know, um, and be concerned with like the overall experience on stage. And, and, and I mean, making music is a joyful thing, especially when you can make music with cats that are like, you know, mm -hmm. you know, that are hit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just uh, just enjoy it. And try not to get too caught up in you. Um, and that's, I say that as somebody who is, you know, who, who is still conscious of that. Every time I play a gig to present my own music. Well, if it's somebody else's music, I think, like, how can I contribute? How can I be a part, be a piece of this puzzle? You know, I, I, it's not about me. It's about this person's music. Um and then in my own, when I'm presenting my own music, I realize that my philosophy is um, I'm not presenting my philosophy that I want to present as a band leader is not that I'm presenting my virtuosity. It's I'm presenting this musical experience. And this is what I'm presenting to you. Um, I've assembled these musicians to play and I've written these songs to play and I'm going to improvise within the context of the group to give you this overall experience. Uh, and I think that's brought me the most joy on the bandstand. It's when a beautiful way to look my, at it. When I stepped outside myself and like, you know, and like uh, if, you know, uh, if one of the many people who <laughs> I, uh, I'm not going to name who have played on my shows and on my albums, uh, you can look them up, uh, are playing my music. It's like, wow, so-and-so, that's so-and-so. I used to listen to them when I was a teenager playing with, you know, X, Y, and Z, and now they're playing my song. Listen to that, listen to that sound. Just like I'm there. That's why I yeah. wanted to do it. That's, that's really a, a, a great way to describe it. I don't think I've had any, anybody I've interviewed describe it that way. The idea of supplementing your, your own ego and figuring out how your piece of the puzzle fits into making the complete picture. I think that's, that's, that's a lot of what I'm hearing you say, which I have a hard time yeah. to do because I am a trumpet player. So I have a huge ego and my goal is to play as high and fast and as loud as I can. You know. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, it's difficult, but, but I found ultimately as I've been more successful at it, um, it's it's allowed me to let stuff go right sure because otherwise you can get into a downwards negative spiral of perfectionism sure that could only drive you crazy because it can always be more perfect and then if it's more too perfect then it sounds too perfect 
Yeah, you know? yeah, and then you yeah. just got to let go of that. And the best way to let go of that is to grab on to everything else and, and focus on like the band and less okay. on Okay. Well, um, you mentioned that you've played at Smalls and, uh, and I, and I'll, you know, I've, I've talked with people who've played at Smalls and I've talked about Smalls on my podcast. I really, like uh, a lot of what uh, what goes on there, in particular their website, which has a lot of information available about artists that appear there and so forth. But if I were coming to New York City and I had, let's say it was a long weekend, what are some don't miss jazz clubs that I should make sure and hit? Maybe uh, ones that you've played in. Uh, one of my favorite venues is the Jazz Gallery. Um, okay. That's on, uh, I think, 28th Street now in Broadway. It used to be on Hudson Avenue to the west of the West Village. Um, it was there for many years. And then, you know, as things, as, as happens in New York, there's issues with real estate and clubs either go under or they move on and they were able to move on. And they've actually become, it used to be a very sort of DIY sort of underground almost club. It was started by Roy Hargrove. Uh, and oh. now you go and it's like a theater um, vibe. It's really fancy now. And, and but but the mo most important thing to know about it is that it's it's curated uh, in such an um, interesting and progressive way. So I would say go to the jazz gallery. Um, you're either going to hear some really talented up and coming young uh, people who no one else has heard of yet on the way up, or you're going to hear some you know, um, established people who are sort of just under the, 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 you know, the, the A-list, but not in talent, but just because they go out of their way to present interesting. Sure. Uh, sure. Artists. Um, and then of course you got to go to the Vanguard. I, I, you know, I, if yeah. I had to choose one night to go, I'll go always go Monday night to hear the Vanguard orchestra. Sure. Um, of course, you know, anybody who's playing there is going to be good too, but you know, the Vanguard, Hearing the Vanguard Big Band is uh, sort of a part of New York jazz history. That oh, man. Um, I have to tell you one real quick story. I yeah. heard the Thad Jones, Mel Lewis Big Band, the only time they ever toured. I heard them twice because they happened to go through California when I was down at the Costa Mesa Jazz Festival. They played oh, that. Wow. And then... Our jazz director, where I was doing my undergraduate work at Boise State University, he got him to come and play at our university. And so I was, yeah, and I think that was the only tour Thad and Mel did. Now, I know the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra has done, like, they got a Grammy for their Live in Japan album and 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 so forth. But, uh, yeah, the Vanguard would have to be on a, there's been too many historical events that have happened there not to not to catch that but anyway i'm sorry to interrupt but i had to no it's okay um yeah you know, and then the smoke jazz club just reopened on the upper west side yeah uh, then there's always dizzies if you want uh -huh. like an upscale experience sure um, you're always going to hear good music there uh, just be prepared to, to spend <laughs> yeah okay um birdland is the same although they're presenting more jazz at birdland these days and less cabaret it's becoming more jazz centric again. Um, and then I'm really not on top of all the new venues that have popped up in Brooklyn post COVID. There was a whole scene. I live in Brooklyn. So I, I spent oh, a lot okay. of time uh, in, in the, in the smaller venues um, 
but there were a lot of DIY spaces in Brooklyn, but a lot of them just like closed and, and post COVID a whole bunch of crop of new ones have popped up and I haven't really explored a lot of them yet. So okay. I'm, I'm still, right. still, I, I have to get out there and, um, and figure out where people are playing. Well, I'll tell you, I tell and then I have another real important question. Since you live in Brooklyn, where should I go for pizza? Oh, well, what you should do is um, get in your car and drive to Providence, Rhode Island, because <laughs> I'm not a fan of New York style. Pizza. Oh, you don't like New York style. Oh, yeah. well, no, I just I'm, I'm laughing only because I, uh, I happened across a video. It was called Brooklyn Eats. And there was one episode where they were going to two or three different pizza places. And then there was another where they were looking for the best Italian sausage and blah, 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 and all this. Anyway, so, I, <laughs> well, it's just like I, I interviewed, I interviewed a, a jazz a trombonist from Philly a few weeks ago. So I had to ask her where I get the best, the best uh, Philly cheesesteak, you know, and she said it wasn't either of the two big named ones. He, she said, the, the, anyway, but. Sorry to get off topic. Tex Mex in San Antonio, La Fogata. La, La Fogata? I, yeah, you know, I used I to go. Back, I, I used to. Uh, I played at the yeah. St. Mary's Jazz Fest, and, and I ended up oh. going there with the band twice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's always plenty of good food. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, sometimes when I was down in San Antonio, would be. Uh, oh, I can't even remember the name of it now. It wasn't too far from the market. But uh, the uh, uh, menu was on the wall, and it was all in Spanish. Mm -hmm. So I would order something and not know what I got, but I loved it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's great. Uh, you know, because I, I want to come to New York. I haven't been to New York in quite a long time and, and uh, would love to hit some clubs. And, and it's always nice to, uh, you know, hear from people who are actually there doing it. Well, now that uh, your Acadia album has been released, are you planning any new recording projects? Actually, yes. Um, I'm writing music for a new one that I'm planning to record for the Positone label. Oh, okay. Um, most I've recorded, I've released two albums with them. Uh, I've been associated with two labels, more or less, over the course of my career, Positone and Whirlwind Recordings. Um, and... I'm writing the music now. We're planning on recording it sometime in the fall. That's not been set, um, but it's either going to be it's either going to be septet, which is my octet minus guitar, uh, or it's going to be um, quintet with vibes and soprano. I haven't decided which yet, so I'm, oh. I'm writing the songs as much as I can before I have to get into actually orchestrating it. So we'll see. It's going to be one of those. Um, and uh, it's it's drawing it's going to be drawing inspiration from uh, stories and fables about like hidden civilizations. Um, Ooh. So um, nothing specific, but like maybe yeah, some general idea and feeling. That sounds very cool. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. We'll see how it evolves over the course of the next few months. I'm sure all that. We'll end up getting fleshed out hard and fast the closer we get to the deadline. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, I love Positone, uh, yeah. the label. I had a had a real nice conversation one afternoon with Mark Free, 
and uh, on the telephone. And uh, I love his philosophy, and I and I love uh, you know his approach to uh, you know the music and uh, the artists, and that he you know and that he is devoted to a quality product. Yeah. And I I, yeah. admi I admire a lot of a lot of that, and I think that's wonderful. Well, Patrick will certainly look forward to release of that new recording when it comes out because it sounds like an exciting uh, venture. Um, well, kind of as a summation, uh, is there one second? I'm oh, sorry, sure, just one second. No problem. Oh, I understand. At first, I thought it was my wife calling me, anyway, and I kept looking for her. But anyway, now that's quite all right. Family's important. But Patrick, I, I was just going to ask you, uh, kind of in summation, if there was anything else you would like to add or tell my audience that I haven't asked you about. Um, no, just that if you want to hear more of my music you can go to my website uh, patrickcornelius.com i've got links to all my albums mm -hmm. um i think they're almost all on Bandcamp, or you know you can find them everywhere um apple music spotify uh mm -hmm. amazon although Bandcamp is where we like to sell it sure <laughs> sure you do uh, um also i sell um i sell my music uh, sheet music, my lead sheets. I've got uh, two ebooks on there right now. One that has all the music from Acadia, um, the, from the latest album from Way of the Cairns, and then another one with all of my other lead sheets of all of my other songs. Um, okay. From all my albums, except for the octet music. Uh, oh. It's not been published. Um, okay. But anyway, so if anybody's interested in, in any of the songs on my albums, you can you can go there check it out sure well and while i'm at it i'll so you know and also remind my listeners that i do put a link to your website in my show notes and also your facebook page mm -hmm. and i also put a link to uh the youtube uh recording of star party oh great so they can they can certainly check that out now they've heard you talk about it you know, and uh, so want to do all that we can in my own small way to help promote you and your music and get people interested in, in listening. And, and uh, Patrick, I, I want to thank you for taking time to talk with me today on Labor Day and, and which maybe is a day off for you, but I appreciate you taking time. And I want to wish you all the best with what I'm sure will be a continued successful musical future. Thank you. You too. My discovery composer of the week, and he really is a discovery composer of the week because I discovered him just yesterday, is a French oboist and composer, Gilles Silvestrini. He was born in Givet, France in 1961. Silvestrini received commissions for chamber music from numerous institutions, such as the Festival de Flaine, the Théâtre du Châtelet, and Bibliothèque Nationale de France, Musique Nouvelle, Nouvelle et Liberté, France Musique, etc. 
His Etudes for Oboe, written in 1997, were part of the works in the 2014 program of the entrance exam to the oboe class of the Conservatoire National Supérieur de Musique et de Danse de Lyon. The All Music Guide lists five recordings of his compositions. In my show notes is a performance of his Six Etudes for Oboe, performed by Trevor Mowry. That wraps episode number 104. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances, are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Next week, I will be interviewing Indianapolis-based novelist and rock singer-songwriter Brett Wiscons. We discuss his newest recordings and his insights into being a musician in the 21st century. Other upcoming interviews include New York City-based multi-genre saxophonist Caroline Davis, Paducah, Kentucky-based blues singer-songwriter Lou Jetton of the band Lou Jetton and 61 South, upstate New York-based folk rock singer-songwriter Seth Warden of the band Warden and Company, and New York City-based jazz drummer Donald Edwards. So don't touch that dial. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.